Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today we want to share with you an interview with Lori L. Tharps, who's an assistant professor of journalism at Temple University. She's also an award-winning author, freelance journalist, and a speaker. And this is somewhat of an addendum to the podcast that we did a little while back, a fan favorite already, all about curly hair. And while we talked about black hair in that podcast, we mentioned that there was so much that we could talk about that we wanted to come back and do an entire episode on that. And this is that episode because Lori L. Tharps, along with Ayanna Bird, literally wrote the book on black hair in America. Right. It's called Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. And it was originally published back in 2002 and reprinted in January of this year, 2014. And we wanted to hear from an expert on the topic. So without further ado, let's bring you the interview with Lori Tharps. Could you just first introduce who you are and how you and co-author Ayana D. Bird decided to write and then update Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. Sure. My, I guess I describe myself as an author, professor, writer, and mom. Um, all of those, um, all those descriptions really, um, define me. And I, I, you know, I wouldn't be a writer if I wasn't a mother. I wouldn't be a professor if I weren't a writer. Um, I feel like everything I do is really intertwined with who I am as an individual. So like my, my professional world really does reflect my passions and my interests. And, um, as a writer, that's true also. So when I was actually in graduate school, I went to Columbia university's graduate school of journalism and the kind of highlight of the program is choosing a topic that you will report on for an entire year for your master's thesis. And um, the professors always made it clear that it, you better choose a topic that um, will keep you interested for a year, you know, because there's nothing worse than having to, you know, report on something that doesn't interest you or bores you after a while. So it took me a while, but I eventually decided that I wanted to write about black hair because it just seemed to me that there was something very different about black hair in the United States when compared with, you know, white people's hair, if you will. It seemed that um, black hair was always making people, um, making non-black people, you know, ask questions or, or you know, have strange ideas about it. Like they didn't understand black hair um, within the black community. There were so many kind of um, superstitions and beliefs and almost conversations that were constant about our hair that I thought that there had to be more to it than just something cosmetic. And um, I that's what I decided to do. And my professor at the time at Columbia was very skeptical that there was something to say about black hair beyond, you know, a personal essay. And she warned me repeatedly that I was going to fail if I chose that as a topic. Wow. But when I actually handed my paper in at the end of the year, not only did um, she change her mind, but she actually invited me over to her home and said that she, you know, apologized and said she was just overwhelmed with how how deep and complex and interesting black hair really was and that she not only thought that herself, but she photocopied my work and gave it to a friend who was about to, it was a white friend who was about to adopt a black child. So because she thought that she needed to know this information. And then she told me, you know, you should turn this into a book. And at the time, you know, just as a recent graduate student, I thought, a book? What? That's crazy, overwhelming. I just want to find a job and move on with my life. But as it turned out, when I, my first job was at Vibe Magazine and I sat next to Iyanla Bird and she had done a similar topic as an undergraduate um, for her honors thesis. She too had written about black hair. She too had had a professor who doubted that she could write anything more than a personal essay, who then at the end when she handed it in, um, he was also encouraged her to turn it into a book. And so here we were sitting next to each other when the person who hired us both said, did you know you both have this weird fascination with 
black hair. And so that led us to talking. One thing led to another. And we said, let's write a book together. Um, let's combine our two projects. My project had looked at the history, um, politics, and business of black hair. And she had looked more at the sociological aspects of black hair in popular culture. And so that's what we did is we took our you know, our two interests and, you know, dove even deeper into the topic and came up with hair story in 2001. And then, um, you know, both of us were magazine writers and we were at the beginning of our career when the book first came out. And then, you know, 12 years later, we decided to update the book simply because everything that goes on in American popular culture, as it relates to black hair is so fascinating and more and more, um, issues were coming up every day where we felt people were still wanting us to talk about the book, but we had to keep adding information because, um, new things were happening. And the most, the most, um, prevalent thing, the biggest change in the world of black hair was the internet. The internet changed the entire black hair game. Um, just as it changed popular culture, it really had a significant impact in how black women around the world could interact with one another finally about the hair care regimens, as well as product style. And just this kind of community was built that never existed before. And the from a financial standpoint, you had a lot of black women entrepreneurs who were able to launch products because they could distribute them via the internet. Whereas before they could maybe, you know, give them to a few friends or sell them at a flea market. Now they could be international distributors with the internet now, um, allowing them access to a, you know, a worldwide audience. So that's why we decided to update the book in 2000. Um, it actually came out in 2014. Um, we decided to update it because so much had happened and people now say, you know, what, what's next? We figure in you know, another decade, we'll probably have to update it again because, um, whether we're talking the business of black hair or the social social sociopolitical aspect of black hair and not just American popular culture, but now even internationally, things keep happening. So we just keep writing. Well, it seems like there is a tendency in white society, kind of going back to the story you're telling about your professor and just sort of her eyes being open to how much there is to talk about when it comes to black hair, it seems like there's a tendency to talk about African hair, black hair in monolithic terms, as if it all has the exact same texture, appearance, preferred styling. And I was just wondering if you could talk about how it's quite the opposite in reality. Going back for centuries in Africa, it was actually the differences among people's hair that's been part of what you called a complex language system in the Mm -hmm. book. Yes, um... It's interesting because um, as we are, you know, firmly into the 21st century in the business world of black hair, talking about salon owners, stylists, um, uh, hair care, manu- you know, manufacturers, that the word that they're now using, it's kind of, I mean, the buzzword now is to talk about textures of hair as, as opposed to race hair, racially talking about hair. Um it, it almost sounds, I mean, when you talk about it clinically, it almost sounds silly to say black hair products because every black person doesn't have the same kind of hair, just like every white person doesn't have the same kind of hair. Um, and it used to be, unfortunately, like if you went to the, you know, the drugstore, the Target, wherever, and you looked at a hair shampoo aisle, of course, you would find rows and rows of, you know, shampoo for color treated hair, for limp, fine hair, for dry hair. I mean, white people had an array of options to find the product that was really meant for their hair, volumizing product, you know, all different types. And yet then there was black hair products as if there was one type of black hair. Um, we quoted and um, talked to um, Anthony Dickey, who is a celebrity stylist who now has his own range of products called hair rules. And he likened it to makeup, which he's like, it's funny because obviously there are multiple shades of makeup because everybody comes in different shades of skin. There isn't one white um, foundation, right? There's multiple variations. And he's like, people should think of hair in the same way, that there are multiple variations of hair types, whether that's in the white community or the black community. Black hair isn't all the same, especially when you think about the origins of black Americans. Most black Americans have, uh, I mean, they are, 
you know, everybody has African blood in them, but they have various different um, ratios of white blood in them also, as well as Native American. And so the idea that their hair is all going to be the same is preposterous. Um, and again, it's just like uh, white Americans as well. There's just not one single type of black hair. So um, all black hair doesn't look the same, just like all black people don't look the same. And that's, you know, it's kind of just a biological fact that people seem to forget because the concept of race is an invented concept. So it doesn't really hold true when you talk about black hair because black people are such a diverse people biologically. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that uh, jumped out to me in the book as well, because we did a podcast uh, a few months back now on the history of hair salons and beauty parlors in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing that you noted earlier in the book is that the hairdresser always held a special place in community life. And that was in reference to um, hairdressers actually in Africa centuries ago. And um, so I was wondering if the hairdresser continues to hold a special place in black community life today in the U.S., and if so, how? Well, the the short answer is absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, and one of the things that we wanted, why you know, people always ask us, well, did you write this book for black people or did you write this book for white people? And it's clearly a book for all people because um, you'll, I mean, some of the things that we wanted to emphasize is how much, how familiar and how similar some of the things that, you know, the black, the black hair, black American hair culture has with any other culture in that, um, you know, your, uh, your salon, your stylist is almost like a, can almost be like a part of your family or the family doctor. I remember you know, years ago, there was an Oprah episode dedicated to how to break up with your stylist because it was such a traumatic thing to do because that relationship was so strong and that wasn't just for black people. But the reason, I mean, and this is where the, you know, that's the similarity is that I think most women who have a permanent stylist have a very special relationship with that person, but within the black community and and you're absolutely right. And that's, you know, one of the things we also tried to establish are the connections from African traditions in, you know, from the 15th century and beyond um, that carry on through today. And absolutely that, you know, historically in African cultures, West African cultures, where most African-Americans trace their history, every community um, had their own designated hairdresser. And that person was a very highly like valued and um, not worshipped, but um, highly regarded person of the community. So you didn't just let anybody touch your hair. You only let the um, designated hairdresser touch your hair. And usually that was a position that was passed down. So a mother would pass that role down to her daughter and would teach her all of the things she needed to know about her, about the craft of hairstyling. And it wasn't because they were just combing and washing hair. I mean, if you know anything or saw any, uh, hairstyles in, um, traditional African societies, they were very elaborate. They meant a lot. A person's hairstyle said everything about them, meaning it would tell you what family you belonged to, what place in society you had, whether you were married, not married, whether you were going to war, whether you were in mourning. So a person who was designated hairstylist had to know all of these styles for their particular community that they were catering to. So today, um, and also because black hair genuinely takes more time to um, style, to manage than I would say, I'd say average, like I would say white hairstyles in general, not, I mean, there's, I'm sure there are some very elaborate white hairstyles, but in general, it takes time. I mean, sometimes even days. So historically that was a time when women would, you know, cultivate friendships was during hair time, you know, when hairstyles were being done. And even today, because a black woman who's going to go into the salon nine times out of 10, she's going to be in there for more than 30, 45 minutes. She could be there two hours. And depending on the, the, uh, the um, style she's getting, she could be in there four, five, six, seven times, even eight hours. So one 
just spending that much time with anybody, you would hope you could have something to talk about. <laughs> but also there is this still this very strong sense of community building happening within the um, um, beauty salons and barbershops as well. But the other thing that happens in the black beauty parlors traditionally is not just talking about hair or women's issues, but it's also been a place where um, revolutionary activity would happen, where people would talk about civil rights um, issues, where people would plan for to do um, any kinds of like community justice work. Um, a lot of times um it's interesting, things were happening and planned in the beauty salon because they were considered safe spaces, almost like churches, and um, public authority figures, uh, police or whoever else, wouldn't go into the beauty parlor because, one, they would discount women as actually able to plot any kind of act, you know, revolutionary activity, but two, because it seemed like a, a, a um, you know, something dedicated to beauty, so you wouldn't be talking about anything of significance. So the beauty parlor has always been this kind of safe, sacred space for black women to, again, you're going to spend a lot of time there, you're going to put a lot of trust in the woman who's who's tasked with doing your hair, but also it's been this kind of buffer zone from the outside world where black women can, pardon the pun, but let their hair down and be themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, and it seems like, too, as long as women need to get their hair done, which will be forever, let's presume, then that place in the community will always be there, which is kind of incredible to think about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's, you know, because we look at hair from all different angles, we also look at the financial aspects, the economy of the black hair care industry. And that is one area, literally since antebellum times before slavery, black people have been, um, very successful in, um, in the salon and barbershop industry. Um, and that industry has been, you know, even during, uh, when slavery was still in effect, many black men were barbers and, but they were, um, treating, they were servicing white people, not black people and became very successful and then turned around and used that money though to uplift the black community, to buy their family members out of slavery, to create schools and um, community organizations for black uplift. So that, that, um, trend continued, you know, even post-slavery and when the black barbers were actually servicing black clients and salon owners as well. So today when we have things that seem wonderful, like blow dry bars and braid bars and, um, others, um, you know, quick, fast, and easy just to many people. That's great because everybody, you know, who has enough, who has time to spend three hours in the beauty, beauty parlor. But on the other hand, it's kind of, you know, you'll see some black people become very, um, defensive or alarmed by the kind of fast paced way that is taking over the, the salon business because, historically, this has been not just a place to get your hair done, but it's been a community center. So that is definitely something that um, is is of concern in the black community is what happens if the the, um, you know, the 30 minute or the blow dry bar or the braid bar, you know, starts to take over the the kind of community salon that, you know, has been part of the community for years. Well, if we go back um in U.S. history to the era of slavery, um, mm-hmm. one thing that you talk about in the book is how white slave-owning Americans used African hair as a justification for slavery, which I think is something mm-hmm. that a lot of people don't realize. And um, I'm right. just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so, it, again, it's in our 21st century ears and eyes, it just seems like it seems in, like crazy to think about this, like to think that this was something that could be done. But you see the results today in that, um, you know, one of the most important ways to make sure you kept a population of people enslaved, not just physically, but mentally so that they would think of themselves as inferior so that they would have less less chances of um, rebelling, if you will, which, you know, didn't really work completely, but kept, you know, a large amount of people feeling themselves inferior, which by um, insinuating and actually 
legally declaring the African race to be inferior. And the way they did that was to um, assign, you know, the physical, the attributes that made Africans different from white people, for example, their hair were to label them as more like animalistic than human. So the hair, you know, black hair wasn't referred to as hair. It was referred to as wool or fur or animal-like such that black people began to really believe that there was something inherently inferior or wrong with their natural hair, you know, the hair that grew out of their head. So from a very early point in their arrival in the Americas and the Caribbean was to try to alter their hair because it was constantly referred to as not just inferior, but ugly and animalistic. So, very very early on in um, plantation life, you saw all kinds of um, ingenious ways to try to straighten their hair. If not straighten it, then at least try to mimic the white hairstyles, which a lot of people were wearing wigs. So even to mimic the wigs that, um, and this was both men and women, so that there couldn't be this continuous debasing of their individual selves by slave owners to... Um, you know, to cast them as inferior. So that kind of their, the African people loved their hair and worshiped their hair and felt their hair to be truly a part of their identity before come, before being, um, kidnapped and enslaved. But as soon as they were brought to this country, as well as to, you know, South America, the Caribbean, um, again, the hair quickly became that thing because it is malleable, um, that they tried to change and make in the image of, of their European captors so that they wouldn't be denigrated in that way. Men often shaved their heads because it was such a sign of blackness that they figured if they got rid of it, that was one way to get rid of this kind of badge of, of um, inferiority. So that is the, you know, that is one of the reasons why even today we still have work to do to claim a reclaim the beauty of our own natural hair because for so long it was deemed inferior, ugly, and animalistic. I mean, even if it's funny because even if you look at, you know, what would be a seemingly innocuous description of a black person, you would see, you know, they would describe their skin, their face, whatever, like on a, maybe a a slave, a, a fugitive slave poster, or even just a description in a you know, a magazine or something, and the way white people would write, they'd say, and her wool was styled this way. I mean, it was scientifically even, the scientific community was calling it wool. So, I mean, it was so endemic into the culture that it would be a real testament of mental strength to not fall prey to the belief that somehow you were, your hair was what made you inferior. Well, and it seems like one of the earliest manifestations of that internalizing of that rampant racism at the time is this designation between good hair versus bad hair and the good hair mm-hmm. being, you know, the, the straighter, the better. Um, right. And so I was wondering if it seems like the good hair, bad hair designations have been largely uprooted today from black mm-hmm. culture or if traces of them still remain, if there is still that internalizing process going on. I wish that I could say that, you know, 10 years after the original book came out, that good hair, bad hair is just a thing of the past. But unfortunately, it's not. It's still very much part of the vocabulary um, and culture in the black community. And and in this updated version, we really kind of looked beyond the black American community and were, you know, sad to find out that this is, you know, we just came back from a, our, what we call our European tour. We were in London, Paris. London, France, I'm sorry, London and Holland, um, and spoke to people from, you know, all over the continent and that good hair, bad hair is, is even, um, used in other parts of the world as well as in, um, Latin America, pelo bueno, pelo malo is also, uh, terms that are still very much in use. And, um, it really is just, I mean, you, we thought when we went into this that this would be terms that were only used by older generations because, you know, they, how they grew up. But of course, 
older generations are the ones that are bringing up the younger generations and they're still using terms like good hair and bad hair. And what we're seeing sometimes where people might stop saying good hair, bad hair, because they know how damaging, and we're saying this within the black community, um, that, you know, people will know that's just not a good, you know, we've got to stop. We, we have to stop using these terms ourselves, but then we're getting euphemisms. You know, a lot of people talk about the, um, um, designations of hair. There's these new like terminology to, to decide how, what kind of hair you have with these one C's to four C's. I don't know if you've heard about that, but it's a curl pattern designation or, and people will talk about wanting to have 2B or 3B hair because that's the more loosely curled hair as opposed to really kinky hair um, or people talk about grades of hair. So there's still, even if people aren't using good hair and bad hair, which they are, I mean, you still hear it, but people are getting savvy about not saying good hair and bad hair because that's, you know, kind of antiquated and we know we're not supposed to say things like that, but the euphemisms are still there. Nice hair, uh, Indian hair, uh, 2B hair, whatever it is, um, it's still um, the concepts are still very much a part of the culture and we're still trying to break free of the idea that everybody's hair should be, or that we all want hair that looks like, you know, it's not even about wanting to look white and that should be very much clarified. It's not about, Oh, I want my hair to be long and blonde. It's more like I want my hair to look like if I were biracial and had mixed hair, which was the hair that would signify to um, slave owners that this was a a more worthwhile, a more useful, a more valuable slave because basically uh, white people, slave owners really believed that race was biological. So if, a, if an African or a slave had more white blood in them, they were potentially um, smarter. You know, they could learn more. They could do more. You could train them. You could have them in the house and have them running your household. Actually, they were more intelligent because they had white, more white blood in them. So this good hair, bad hair really was not about a beauty issue to start. It really was this idea that you were a superior being. If you had more attributes, you had more physical attributes, which would mean more white blood running through you. And that was, again, a very deliberate separating of the black population because if you kept if you kept the black people themselves kind of at odds with the each other it was again easier to keep them from rising up as a group and rebelling so the good hair was enforced by whites and then reinforced by the black community themselves because the lighter ones the ones with the light lighter skin and looser curled hair we're getting better treatment in a lot of ways. Um, and that then put a division within the black community itself. So you had this perpetual reinforcement of that concept that the better, the looser your hair, the more it resembled kind of white European hair, all of these benefits were bestowed upon you. So, and that wasn't like one or two people that was a enti- an entire population. And again, not just in the U.S., but all throughout the places where Africans were enslaved by white Europeans. Um, so it's going to take a lot more than, you know, the natural hair movement, which is doing great work in terms of um, making people realize just how wonderful their own natural hair is. Um, so that was a really long answer to say that, yes, we're still using good and bad hair terms and it's not gone from the community. Well, that's something that has persisted since the original publication of Hair Story. Right. What has been the biggest development you've seen, you know, between 2001 and now in terms of natural hair in American culture? Well, the biggest, I mean, the real, I mean, the huge giant kind of thing that made all the difference was the Internet, which I think I mentioned earlier, but you know, the internet was simply the medium that allowed a movement to blossom, which is really, really the reason we had to update the book because the natural hair movement, which I'm hesitant, you know, both Iana and I are hesitant when people want us to define it. What is this movement? Because there's no leader, you know, there's no 
doctrine. There's no Bible. There's no, you know, um, official membership card to be a member of the movement. Um, Nonetheless, the idea, you know, the energy behind it has definitely been um, kind of a grassroots energy coming from black women around the United States who have decided to stop straightening their hair with chemicals. And I make that distinction because we'll we'll get to that in a second. But the idea that people are not just um you know, not for some sort of political statement as it were in the sixties, where it was a real political statement and, you know, there was a real, you know, the civil rights movement, the Afro was really a part of the political protest. Whereas today in the, you know, early two thousands, we saw women, black women, very, very, um, deliberately deciding to stop straightening their hair, not as a political movement, as much as it was a beauty decision, which makes it political and revolutionary in ways, um, because it was people saying, I can still be beautiful, and I am no longer of the belief that the only way my hair is beautiful and pretty and fun and acceptable and sexy and attractive, if it's straight, Um that is a revolutionary thought for a black female in the United States. And so what we see is not just, you know, women here and there taking their hair out and wearing it in an afro, but we're seeing an entire new language and lexicon and styling options of black women um, wearing their hair in natural styles and having fun with it. And not, it again, like a I'm wearing an Afro to make a serious political statement, but I'm wearing a twist out or I'm doing, you know, again, there's styles that were never heard of. And the, the beauty of it is that there are products now. There's a whole new kind of culture around natural hair that is not political. It's completely beauty, um, motivated. So, um, that I think is the biggest change is that you have, um, you can look online and go see, you know, thousands of hair tutorial videos, um, YouTube channels, blogs, websites, where you can get information and, and information about, you know, how to do certain styles. And you can get um, communities talking about just products that they're using. You can go on a cruise ship and talk about your natural hair and how much fun it is. Um, and you even have people who will, you know, if if you are discriminated against at work, you will have an entire online community supporting you to the point where you may, you know, get your job back because there is such a vocal chorus of people supporting any black woman who decides to go to go natural. And again, the industry is rising up around it to say, remember how I was saying before how black hair crowd, black hair care products used to be just that one thing as if black hair was all the same. Now you can go into any kind of mainstream store. Um, I mean like a whole foods target um, and find products that are meant not just for one type of black hair, but multiple textures of black hair. And the products aren't in one kind of bottle, brown bottle on the bottom shelf. They're beautifully packaged. They smell lovely. They allow black women to get involved into the, beauty rituals that have been denied them for so long because we were supposedly all a monolithic group who had one type of hair and didn't spend the time, you know, playing with our natural hair um, and seeing all the different things it could do. And so the community started doing this on their own and industry, both manufacturers of products and salons have risen up to support them. And there's even a whole new um, industry that has risen up around the natural hair movement, which is the natural hair meetup. And like I, I was not joking about a cruise. You can go on a cruise. You can have parties. There's natural hair parties, meetups, cruises, um, uh, conventions. There's a whole industry around this idea that black women are um, excited about their natural hair. And, and while that to a non-black person, that might seem excessive. Like why is anybody so t- obsessed about their hair and it's because you have it's almost an entirely different um it's a whole new experience to actually play with your natural hair to know what it does because for generations and generations 
conditions. Black women have been putting chemicals on their hair and straightening it and believing that that was what their hair looked like. And it's like, I, I'm trying to think of a, an equivalent of what a white person might experience. Um, I, okay, here's a good example. If you had been overweight your entire life and you go on a diet that actually works, I mean, something that really feels good, you go on a diet or exercise, an exercise plan and you have a whole new, you know, feeling about yourself and you actually look 100% different, you would be, you'd probably be like, one, you'd go buy different clothes for yourself. You'd want to talk to people because it would just be like, I have never, I never knew that, you know, life was like this as a skinny person. Like, I never knew that exercising was so much fun. I never knew that, you know, I'd be going on all these dates because men would find me attractive with, you know, being skinny, right? For black women, for them to suddenly have a whole different experience with their hair. That's almost what it's, I'm, I'm trying to think of something that you would be able to, you know, relate this to because it's like, I never knew my hair could do this. Like I always thought, you know, for so long, black women were told like, you have to keep your hair straightened because if you don't, it's just unmanageable. It's ugly. It would be just a mess. You know, it would just be unattractive. And then you see on YouTube, somebody whose hair looks like yours does. So you try it and then you find out, wow, I didn't know my hair did this. I had no idea my hair could, you know, curl in this way, or I could style it that way. And she's attractive and I could be attractive like that. Like it's a, it's a literally a revolutionary concept for women to, to see their hair that is, they've been told. I mean, it's like psychically in their psychic history that their hair is naturally ugly. And it's like, oh my God, it's not. It, not only is it not ugly, it's pretty and it's fun and I can buy nice products for it. And, and I can, you know, I, I'm, I'm, it, for a lot of black women, once they go natural, it almost feels like they're like born again Christians or something like that because they're so excited by this information that it seems that had been denied to them for so long, which it has. So there's a real sense of excitement, enthusiasm about this natural hair movement, because again, you've got years and years and years and years of people telling you one thing, and then you discover the truth. So it, it there, there is a bit of zeal, uh, zealousness, is that I think the word, you know, to the, to this movement. And, um, that I think is the most exciting thing to see. And it's what's really is exciting is to see that it's happening, not just in the United States, but we, like I said, we went to London, we went to Amsterdam. Um, we talked, we were supposed to be in Paris. So we were really um, talking to a lot of people in um, Paris as well as in Switzerland, even and seeing the kind of excitement that this is spreading because what's happening in the U S People look at the U.S. to see, you know, what's culturally cool, and it's spreading like wildfire all over. And in some countries, in some cultures, it's it's an even more defying and revolutionary idea. Like um, in the Dominican Republic, for example, where the idea of being black is such a dangerous thing to accept um, for black women to kind of not even black women, any woman of color with kinky hair in the Dominican Republic to stop straightening their hair. That's a really revolutionary act, but it's also very liberating. And what's happening there in the hair community is fascinating. So all of this to me is the most um, exciting and new thing that happened in the last, you know, 10 years, 10 to 12 years in the um, black hair community. Well, and it seems like just culturally speaking, I mean, you keep using the word revolutionary and it seems even more and and it does sound revolutionary. Just the very concept of embracing hair for beauty's sake. And that's it. Right. And there are no qualifications necessary. I mean, that's that might sound so simple, but I mean, it's it's pretty radical if you think about where we as, you know, American society are coming from when it comes exactly. to black hair. Exactly. It is. And that's, you know, even my father, I love him. He, when I told him I was writing a book about hair, he was like, you know, so excited. That was my first book. And he was so proud of me, but he, you know, you know, pulled me aside. Are you sure there's really something to say? Let's work a long book about black hair, you know, People often look at me funny when I say that, you know, my, I mean, I'm a academic 
university professor. And when people say, what's your area of interest of research? I'm like, black hair. And it seems, I mean, unless you understand where I'm coming from, it does seem like there couldn't possibly be that much to say. But it is incredible how um, the hair is so telling in our, again, of our cultural place in society. Um, part of it's because the hair is so malleable. You know, we can't really change. I mean, you can go under the knife, obviously, and you could, in theory, change your whole body. But in terms of kind of every day, what you as an individual have control over, your hair is one of those things. You can change its color. You can change its texture. You can change the style every day. You can put a wig on. I mean, there's so many ways that you can change your hair to reflect what you think society expects of you. And that's true for any, you know, black or white or any other um, person of any background. The hair really is our one thing. And I mean, think about men, facial hair. I mean, they can grow a beard and look like a completely different person. They can grow a mustache. They can grow handlebar mustaches. I mean, hair really is that thing that we have control over that can really change how we look. So in that respect, um, in that respect, that's a universal truth about hair. Um, but then when you take it into the black society, into black, the black community, um, where we have, we are the other in a white dominated society, our hair is the, gives us the ability to kind of fit in or not fit in because it also, it is that malleable thing. Um, there's this example of, you know, Angela Davis, you know, who was a wanted woman and she was so identified with her afro that when she tied her afro down and wore a wig, she was walking around, you know, walked through a group of police officers who didn't even look twice at her because she didn't have that big afro. And she alluded, um, she alluded police capture simply by changing her hairstyle. So it's, um, it is revolutionary to think because to think about black hair in the ways that we do, because it's really, I mean, it's really identity politics. And it is how, you know, if we choose to conform and we choose to use our hair to assimilate and fit in, that's one thing. But when we choose to buck the system, we choose to do something different, we obviously are going to doubly stand out. Um, and it takes courage in a lot of ways to do that. Um, but when we do do it and we do it well, you know, there's a lot of, you know, positive responses from all over. Um, but I mean, the reality is that our hair still causes people to, um, question our loyalty to the country, our, our, whether or not we're, you know, um, violent, whether we're criminal, whether we're anti-society, it still says so much to the external culture what kind of black person are you based on what your hairstyle is doing? So um, we're still judged very much by what our hair is doing. And and that also is true cross racial. I mean, you know, if a white woman walks into a, a room and she has a mohawk and a pink, you know, a pink mohawk, people are going to make assumptions about her. Um, if she has long hair versus short hair, curly or straight, all of that, you know, people are judged by their hairstyles. But again, black people are doubly judged because, their hairstyles seem to signify certain things to people, you know, again, are they anti-establishment? Are they a drug dealer? Are they a gang member? All of these things are still caught up in our hair. So whatever we're doing stylistically, especially if it's different than the norm, really is a revolutionary act in a lot of ways. And I'll continue my conversation with Lori L. Tharps about her book, Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America, when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. The last thing I wanted to ask you about is how this natural hair movement and just black hair in general intersects with the workplace, because this is actually uh-huh. something we've heard from our listeners about as well in terms right. of the persistent discrimination, particularly targeted towards black women regarding their hair in the workplace, because there's this idea that professional, in quotes, looks a specific way and it's very straight. And uh, my my co-host Caroline actually uh, had a friend who in a job interview was uh, wore her hair kind of straightened and at the end of the interview which she nailed 
her future boss said, now I, I hope that y- you plan to wear your hair like that as long as you work for us. And, oh my goodness. And it, as if it's nothing, as if it, that is completely and totally fine. So, um, how, I mean, <laughs> so where, where does all of this fit together? I mean, are we, I mean, we just had, uh, the U.S. military, for instance, update right. its, finally updated its hair regulations for, uh, black female soldiers. I mean, is that a step, do you think, in, in a domino effect or is it going to take a long time? Well, um, I'm very, I was very heartened to see that the military responded to all of the, um, backlash and, cries for to please look again um, at their policy, which to me shows that when black women and black people stand together, um, that their voices can be heard. Um, that was really, uh, I thought, a really positive response and that they relaxed some of their their rules, I thought, was also very positive because it meant that they were listening. But they still um, outlawed dreadlocks, which I thought was still a which, you know, actually allows me to answer the rest of your question that, you know, the idea that I, I don't know who is making these decisions, um, either in the military or anywhere else that, you know, you, that certain styles signify certain things about a person. Um, yes, it may be true that there is a drug dealer out there who has dreadlocks, but that does not mean, I think we all learned that in seventh grade logic class that all drug dealers therefore wear dreadlocks. Like, um, there's this, I believe that the reason that the military and other, um, professions, organizations, I mean, everything from FedEx to Six Flags have outlawed, uh, dreadlocks for their employees. Um, and, Especially, I mean, when it goes all the way down to Six Flags or even a mail carrier from like a FedEx or UPS who, you know, lodged complaints about employees wearing um, dreadlocks, the only reasons, like the, the main reasons that people have, are saying that is because they claim that those are scary hairstyles. And that can only come from a belief system that there's something inherently scary about dreadlocks or that people who wear dreadlocks are involved in nefarious activity, which goes to the back to the idea that, you know, when there are policies, workplace policies, for example, about certain hairstyles, there's one, I mean, it's very clear to me that certain organizations, if we're talking about a corporate environment, that they are going to have a dress code. And I can even understand to a large extent why any kind of out of the ordinary hairstyle is going to be frowned upon. And that's for, again, white or black. Um, I would, I believe that, uh, you know, a corporate banking environment who still makes women and men wear blue suits, red ties, that's it, are going to say something if you come to work with, you know, even if a woman has just excessively long hair, that's always kind of out because it would be distracting. But there's still like a double standard for black people because certain styles, even if you don't know anything about them, are just deemed inappropriate simply because there is a, an association with negative behavior with that style. And that's just that's just racist. <laughs> I mean, there's no other way to say it. And we are, again, this is why we wanted to update the book. This is why we have our website, hairstoryonline.com, because this keeps happening where people are discriminated against. And we're seeing it even in, like, elementary schools where young girls are even being told that they have to leave the school or go home because they're wearing their hair in dreadlocks or Afro puffs styles that somebody has designated as inappropriate. And when we talk, most of these are natural hairstyles, which would assume when you say they're inappropriate for the school or inappropriate for the workplace, then you're suggesting that natural black hair doesn't belong in an academic environment or that it doesn't belong in the workplace. Those are questionable. Those are really dangerous um, precedents to set, in my opinion. And again, I'm not suggesting that anybody should be able to come to work with a Bob Marley head of dreadlocks if you're working in a bank. But if your dreadlocks are neat and in a bun, you know, they're no more. I mean, what's the difference? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's my this kind of wholehearted discrimination against an entire type of hairstyle to me, shows that there's not enough nuance or wanting to make the 
it's not even making an exception. It's about paying attention to what is um, a different culture's, you know, hair. Um, the military, I feel like they kind of took that into it. I feel that that's what they were listening to in that black women were saying, you're outlawing the, the, the very style that would make the most sense for a woman in combat. You know, styles that are easy to do, that don't need a lot of maintenance, like twists and dreadlocks, and you've just outlawed them. And you actually put something as ridiculous as you can wear a wig. Wearing a wig in combat? Like, <laughs> I mean, just thinking about it is ridiculous. And so it's like, clearly, whoever was writing that policy didn't know enough about black hair, like, biologically, to say that doesn't make sense. Like that's not either economically efficient or efficient in terms of styling for what we want our soldiers to be able to do. Um, and I think it's the same thing in the professional world. You know, people are making assumptions like you just can't wear that style because that means you're a drug dealer or that means you're, you know, I, I can't, I can't even rationalize why a short neat Afro isn't appropriate in a certain boardroom because it's, you know, it's simply a very simple, basic, non-in-your-face um, style, and yet they have certain, these certain looks are, it's simply because it's an Afro, it would be considered inappropriate. So where we are today, I think in, um, I mean, I think it should be clarified that you're, there are a lot of professions, I mean, some um, very creative professions, like the magazine industry, which I have worked in, in the academia I've never been dinged for my hairstyles and I've worn every natural hairstyle you could imagine, dreadlocks, afros, big poofy hair, I mean everything. And I've only been complimented on my hair. My co-author, Ayana Bird, same thing. She's worked in a variety of creative um, communications positions and she's never been dinged on her hair either. But every single day we hear stories like you just shared with me people who are in corporate environments who are told in the interview or don't get the job um, or are reprimanded because of their hairstyles. So, I mean, even on, um, we, you know, just this past year, we saw um, a woman, you know, on um, broadcast television lose her job for a natural hairstyle related issue. So um, I would say that we are no, I don't think we've gotten any better because these things are still happening and they seem to be happening still rather regularly. Um, but I feel like at a, to a certain extent, like if I'm ever, if I'm ever um, counseling young people who are looking for jobs, I would say, you know, know the environment that you're going into. And if you're going into a corporate environment and your, your natural hairstyle is important to you, you have to make a decision is the job more important or is your hair more important? Because people aren't going to budge because of one person. If they have a, if they have a uniform policy, be, be prepared for your hair to match the uniform because there is still a standard that for the most part, natural black hairstyles don't meet. Um, and this too is an international phenomenon. There's a, I mean, it was a YouTube. It went viral because there was a young a man um, who worked for Air France as an airline steward, and they outlawed, outlawed dreadlocks. And he wore a wig to work every day. Took it off when he got to when he got home, but put it back on when he got on the airplane, <laughs> just to cover up his dreadlocks, which were very neat, um, very neat, trim, short dreadlocks. But it was a uniform policy, and so he he just he said it like my wig is part of my uniform. So I don't think that we have gotten any kind of further in our acceptance of um, certain hairstyles in the workplace at all. Um, my only hope is that, again, young people who are entering the workplace understand this. And I don't know if it's a battle they need to fight if they are trying to get a job. I think that at this point they need to know that they have to decide if their hair or their job is more important. Uh, it's just unfortunate that's an, even a decision that has to be made. I know it's really, I mean, and it, again, it, I'm, I'm old, <laughs> you know, I'm old. I, like I said, I've had the luck of choosing professions that are on the creative side. Mm -hmm. This has never been an issue for me. It has never like it, 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 to me, when you said that about your um, colleague, I, I, it's almost like I can't believe that it's true. I read about it all the time. I studied, I talk to people about it. So I very much know it's true. 
but it still boggles the mind that a young person has to think about whether they should cut off their beautiful dreadlocks that they've been growing since they were, you know, 16 or something that they keep neat and professional in a bun because there is a very large possibility that the person that interviews them sees their dreadlocks and decides that that's inappropriate or that they're not corporate material or that they can't even see their stellar resume because they're looking at their hair and thinking that person is not going to be a team player. That person is probably involved in a deep seedy underworld. I mean, I can't even guess what's going on in their minds, but whatever it is, in today's world, I cannot honestly tell somebody to risk a hairstyle if they really want the job. And, and you know, again, I think that that's, again, if a young, I, I can't, you can't equate that with, an, you know, in a, um, you cannot equate that to people who are not black because there's really not a hairstyle that a white person would have that would automatically disqualify them from, um, a job. I mean, if a, if a white woman had really long hair, she could always pin it up in a bun. You know, if she, I mean, I don't, I, I can't really think of an equivalent where she would have to, you know, cut off her hair and start over again to get a job. Like it just, I don't see anything. I mean, she might have to take out her six earrings, but that's different. That's not the same thing as um, cutting off your hair or putting chemicals in your hair, or putting extreme heat on your hair so that it looks like whatever the corporate world wants it to look like. I mean, that's, I mean, it's altering your body to get a job. Well, and that gets to the point of, you know, what you said, where this is simply racism in the guise of professionalism. And so it kind of gets this pass under, like, uh, under dress codes, professionalism, corporate jargon, et cetera. But the underlying issue is a history of persistent racism. Absolutely. And um, it's, it's like I said, I've never been in that situation. And I, I don't even know what I would do. I mean, if I had a family to feed, I certainly I mean, again, we've talked to so many people who have been in this situation. A good friend of mine was a corporate lawyer in New York City and she had dreadlocks and she too, she had a wig in her office. She would just put the wig on when she got to work and take it off when she left. She didn't take it home. She, you know, it wasn't a part of, it was part of her uniform. And, um, I guess that, I mean, I think that's the sanest way to, uh, you know, to deal with that is you put on your corporate uniform and it's just for the, she, she left it on her desk. She, she had her little wig stand and she was like, I put it on when I get there and take it off when I leave. Um, so, th- I mean, that's the extra burden. I mean, it is the extra burden that it requires to, you know, it's not about how, how good your grades were. It's not about how many internships you had. It's still about what you, how you present so that you make the people around you comfortable. Mm-hmm. So it's the burden is on the black person trying to get the job. And, you know, to be, again, the um, Hampton University, a, a historically black um, university, their business school has outlawed natural hairstyles for their business students because they claim that they are preparing you for the world which you are going to enter. So you can't even be in the business school at this black institution with natural hair because they, too, have said this is, you know, it's not going to be acceptable. So it won't be acceptable here. So, again, this is uh, this is an issue that has many sides to it. And um, the champions or the people who are fighting against it aren't necessarily the ones who you would think. And the people who are are supporting it aren't necessarily the same ones who you would think. It's a it's a very. I mean, you you can find people who would fight on all sides of this issue. Um, it's interesting that the um, I think it was one of the deans at Hampton said, you know, I don't know why people insist on wearing these styles. It, they don't they aren't traditional black styles to wear. You know, he said, you know, Malcolm X didn't wear dreadlocks. Um, um, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't wear dreadlocks. So, you know, why why do you think that you have to have dreadlocks to be, you know, to be a proud black man or something like that? I'm paraphrasing and I'm, you know, I'm just pointing out that I'm trying to make the point that um, not all black people also believe that this is, that it's, that, that um, 
not all black people are against the idea that, you know, there should be some sort of corporate environment, corporate hair code as well. So, um, so again, so the, the people who are perpetuating this, this idea aren't just white people. That's also something to remain, to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Well, and if it was unclear to any of the listeners at the beginning of our conversation, how someone could write an entire book about this, (laughs) I think it it should be pretty clear now. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, we haven't even touched the tip of the iceberg. I know. (laughs) There's so, so much to talk about. Well, Lori, those were all of my questions for you. And honestly, yes, I I could continue asking you so many questions. (laughs) Um, But is there any final takeaway for our listeners about black hair, about the book, um, just anything you'd like to add? I mean, the thing is that, again, when it goes back to why we wrote the book, when um, I had this experience um, when I was still, I worked in a corporate environment. um, I worked at a PR agency when I first got out of college. And um, one of the clients that um, I wasn't working on, but one of my colleagues was working on was a a product. um, It was a black hair care line called it was Revlon's cream of nature line of shampoos and conditioners. And one of my white colleagues came into my office and saw the, uh, it was like I had a product poster or product sample on my desk and she looked at it and like recoiled and said, Oh my God, what is that? That sounds disgusting. And I was trying to figure out what she was talking about. And she was like, cream of nature. That sounds like dirty. Like, what is that? And it just, shocked me for a minute because I mean I understood where her mind had gone but I couldn't figure out why she didn't know what cream of nature was um because it was the shampoo in my bathroom for my whole entire life like it it seemed as usual as regular as ivory soap and that's when it really hit me like that was one of those big moments where I realized that white people and black people live in completely different worlds when it comes to our hair that you know black people for the most part know everything about white hair culture because it's what we see it's what's on television. It's what's in movies. It's just what's in the public eye. But on the other hand, white people don't know anything. I mean, I don't want to say like they don't know anything, but black hair culture is a complete mystery because it's done behind closed doors in separate spaces and in separate places. And until recently, even the products that we used were, you know, on separate shelves at the drugstore. So you wouldn't even realize that there are different products. So there's this, um, idea that we had that, you know, if not just black people, but non-black people understood black hair culture, that we could really, um, you know, bridge some of these, you know, big gaps that there are between, you know, black and white America, which people tend to think that those issues are, you know, because of, you know, segregation and busing and, um, you know, politics, when it's really, I think, a lot more about the little intimate things that we do on a day-to-day basis. And so much of, you know, pain comes from just misunderstanding and not knowing. So the, you know, this, can I touch your hair? I don't understand. Like, it's just about understanding and learning and knowing. So that's why we wrote the book. That's why we love to do the radio interviews, because um, the more people know and, and, total asterisks here is that not just white people, but black people as well, because a lot of people, a lot of black people don't even know their own history of their hair. So feel maybe um, sensitive about it, but don't even understand why on both sides of the coin. I think if more people actually understood where so many, so much of this hurt, but also so much of the celebration and the, and the culture comes from, then we bridge the gaps of misunderstandings and, you know, that next person who is interviewing a black person doesn't say, oh, my God, I hope you're going to wear your hair like that. (laughs) You know, it's more of a, oh, nice hair or maybe she'll have her hair differently tomorrow, but I'll understand that that's very normal. Um, That's what we're hoping for is that's why we wrote the book is so that all Americans um, would take the time to just learn a little bit about this very public very public thing of black hair that has a lot of, you know, implications and ramifications within our culture. Well, I just want to thank you for coming on Stuff Mom Never Told You to teach us <laughs> and our, me and our listeners all about this and clear up misunderstandings and just fill in all of these gaps that very much need to be filled in. Um, last thing I just want to ask is where people can go to find more uh, information about you, Ayana, and the book, because it is fantastic, and I highly recommend that people read it. 
Well, thank you so much. Um, people can um, go to our website, hairstoryonline.com, all one word, no caps or anything, hairstoryonline.com. And that's where you can find out information about the book. There's links to Ayana and our my um, individual web pages. Um, there's always updated information about what's going on in the world of black hair and as well where you'll be able to see us if we're doing any speaking tours or anything like that. We're not doing a whole lot of speaking anymore. Like right now, certain th- events that are coming up will be there. But if you want to see us, that's where to find us is we have, you know, we have a calendar page on there. <laughs> Well, thank you so much again to Lori L. Tharps. Uh, we hope you go check out her website and definitely pick up her book, Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. And we definitely, definitely want to hear from our listeners on this topic. What types of issues have you dealt with with your hair? What types of things have you heard from other people? I'm sure... There are all sorts of stories out there. Yeah, so email us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can do that. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we have a couple of letters about our curly hair episode that we did a little while back to share with you right now. So I've got a letter here from Lacey, and she said, I'm currently transitioning from years of flat ironing my hair to letting it go curly, and it's been a major struggle with my own preconceived notions of curly hair as unkempt. And I wanted to add a couple of things. One is another movie where curly hair is potentially used as symbolism. In How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, Kate Hudson's character starts as a stick-straight, slick blonde, actually working at a fashion magazine, but as her character transitions away from that, she gets curlier and curlier. Finally, I'm an attorney, and even though I'm trying to wear my hair more naturally for court, I still show up with straightened hair in a ponytail. No matter what statement I'm trying to make, I can't have an old-fashioned male judge think my case was sloppy because of his perceptions about my hair and potentially risk losing a case. I hate that that's how it is, but there isn't much I can do personally. I'd also love to hear an episode on how female attorneys must dress for occasions like court, by the way. Every once in a while, a judge will write an article about slutty or frumpy attorneys, and that never goes over very well. Thanks for the great podcast. This is my first time writing in, and I just love your episodes. It gets me through some of my more tedious tasks of my day. So thanks, Lacey. Okay, I have a letter here from TJ. She says, thank you so much for covering this topic. I stopped chemically straightening my hair in middle school and stopped using heat after my first year in college. I have kinky curly hair, by the way. So many African-American women spend years not knowing what their hair actually looks like and are even afraid to find out because of the prominent, quote, good hair, bad hair notions that plague the community. I found some interesting articles, uh, and TJ talks about articles on the website Black Girl with Long Hair. Uh, she says one about the Army changing regulations for certain hairstyles, and another about an old Louisiana law that forced women of color to wear scarves because of their fabulous hairstyles. Another current issue is chemical relaxer companies trying their hardest to roll out lines of quote-unquote natural products for curly hair. And so again, that website that TJ pointed out is Black Girl with Long Hair. So thank you for the excellent talking point, TJ. And thanks everybody who's written in to us. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one that also include all of our sources so you can follow along while you listen Head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 